You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And welcome to our very first episode of 2023. We hope that you all had a very happy and healthy holiday season. We're hitting 2023 hard and we're kicking things off with a podcast episode on a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts as animal lovers. And we have a very special guest who we'll introduce in just one moment. If you did not listen to our last episode, Episode, you should definitely tune into that. It was a holiday themed episode. It was the 12 days of science. And so we each picked some of our favorite science facts that we wish everyone knew about, ranging from things about the microbiome, inflammation, marketing ploys related to organic foods, non-GMOs, clean beauty. Um, we went there. Um, we recapped a lot of topics that we've previously covered, but they were absolutely worth repeating. So today, Today we are going to talk about fad pet diets. So as you may or may not know, Andrea and I are avid pet lovers. Uh, we both rescue animals. Uh, Andrea, how many cats do you have now? What's your cat count? I'm, I'm up to seven at the moment. Seven. Yep. Totally normal. <laughs> seven cats. Um, I have four dogs and two cats. So this is something that really is, is very important to us. And there's so much misinformation being spread. So we brought on an expert to speak with us about fad pet diets today, Dr. Bill Tancredi. Thank you so much for joining us, Bill. It's my pleasure. So Dr. Tancredi is a doctor of veterinary medicine. He received his DVM from St. George's University and has been practicing since 2014. After being promoted to the leadership of a corporate hospital, Dr. Tancredi became certain of the need for privately owned veterinary practices and started his own practice in his hometown of Chadsford, Pennsylvania. And Dr. Tancredi, uh, I'll call you Bill, I hope that's okay, um, Bill is Bill really prides himself on practicing evidence-based veterinary medicine. So we were, again, we're super excited to chat with you today. And Andrea, you, you bring your cats to Dr. Tancredi. Is that right? I, I do. I do. <laughs> I do. I do. So I'm often texting him at random hours of the day with some new symptom that has emerged, especially when I was fostering and getting most of my veterinary care through the shelter, which is, you know, very overwhelmed and not really able to support all the needs. So let's get into it. So we, we know that the majority of U.S. households include a pet. So 70% of U.S. households or about 90.5 million families own a pet. This is according to the 2021-2022 National Pet Owners Survey. This is up from 56% of U.S. households in 1988, which was the first year that the survey was conducted, and 67% in 2019. And I know a lot of people say that they adopted or brought a pet into their family during the pandemic when a lot of people weren't getting out. So interesting to see how that statistic has increased over time. 
So Andrea, can you set the stage? Let's talk about the pet industry and the pet food industry. Yeah. So if we talk about kind of U.S. pet owners, because that's kind of where where we've pulled numbers from, Americans spend about $99 billion on their pets and pet products every year. And that includes veterinary care, that includes toys and household supplies, but of course it also includes food. Um, And if you parse that down by pet type, dogs rank number one on on the amount spent and cats are number two. And then below that, you have rodents and reptiles and amphibians and so on and so forth, birds as well. But I think it's really important to understand that, yes, you know, the the pet food industry is an industry, just like a lot of the other industries we've talked about, you know, on the podcast before when we talked about, you know, gluten-free products or, or organic products and things like that. And so, you know, there are obviously very large players in the pet food industry. So a lot, you know, you'll you'll recognize them. Nestle, which, um, you know, makes Purina um, and other brands. We have Hills Pet Nutrition. We have the JM Smucker Company, which does Meow Mix and Kibbles and Bits and Milk Bone, Hearts Mountain Corporation, Mars Inc., which Bill has just informed us um, pretty much owns tons of the food industry, but also many emergent um, veterinary hospitals and and are a big player in veterinary medicine as well. But one thing that's been interesting is that in the recent years, there are these kind of newer or smaller or boutique companies that are emerging as well that are starting to, you know, play in the pond of pet food industry. And with that, of course, comes advertisements and marketing, making claims that, you know, these large large big box brand companies are maybe inferior or that you should really be feeding your pets, you know, diet X, Y, and Z. So, you know, with obviously the increase in misinformation and the spread on social media, we th- we thought, you know, we would go to the source and kind of talk about some of these common fad diets that we hear about and really hear what's going on in the field of veterinary medicine. So why don't we kick things off talking about the raw food diet? Um, We get so many questions about this. Bill, do a lot of your pet parents um, come to you talking about this particular diet? I do get a lot of questions about this. It's a popular idea, at least alternative, even if everyone doesn't want to try it. Not everybody's up for feeding raw food, but a lot of people do um, have a big interest in, is it better for my pet? So maybe maybe I can kind of set the stage. So, you know, typically the raw food diet has kind of gained popularity. It's been touted as being closer to what our ancestral dogs and cats ate, and therefore it's purported to be more nutrient-dense or more easily digestible than commercially available pet food. And, you know, that, that could include dry kibble or wet food. So typically, you know, we're talking about raw meats, raw organ meats, so awful liver, kidney meats, etc., as well as can also include raw vegetables and things like that. So, Bill, maybe you can kind of give a summary of, you know, what you typically see in terms of what the composition might be, maybe some differences between cats and dogs, and then we can maybe get into the science or the lack thereof behind it. We'll start with the AVMA statement on it, which says, and the AVMA... Uh, actively discourages it, and who am I to argue? There is some neat science about, you know, freezing it, irradiating it, doing other things to manufacture it, to make it safe. To me, it seems like a lot of work for not a lot of benefit, if any at all. Uh, There's 
pretty significant risk of contamination to the family, to other pets, to other things. It seems to me, personal prejudice biased opinion, that it's a lot of work for not a lot of gain. So, you know, typically these raw diets are going to be foods that pet parents or individuals are preparing at home, right? They're going to go buy raw meat from the grocery store, presumably, and then grind it up or blend it or, or chop it up or something to make it, you know, palatable or, or easy for the animal to consume. Is that correct? Yes. And sometimes they'll have a recipe from a nutritionist and sometimes they won't have a recipe from a nutritionist. And the trouble with not just raw diets, but homemade diets is that they're often done without guidance. They're often done with an omnivore's perspective in mind. And they're can be really lacking in being in nutrients. They can be unbalanced. They can be suboptimal diets, despite having, you know, one or two good ingredients or, oh my goodness, we've, you know, we've got raw food. This is better for them. It's like they live a lot longer now than they used to. This is good for us. Uh, cooking is a really great invention. What's tricky about this is we know, of course, that a lot of the, you know, the pet owners who are doing this are doing so because they think that they're providing benefit, right? Um, they think that they're doing something. Sure. Nobody wants to hurt their dog. We hope, my goodness. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think it comes from a place of, uh, you know, they want to do good. They want to do better for their pet. Right. They want to, Yeah. Right. People think that it's more nutritious. Right. Um, but for the same reasons that we can't eat, you know, raw meats with with the exception of things like sushi grade salmon and you know, other things like that, you know, there there is risk of bacterial infection and, and all that good stuff. So, Andrea, maybe can you jump in and talk about sure. some of the risks <laughs> associated? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So. So, of course, you know, as Bill already mentioned, you've got contamination issues. Those contamination issues could occur from where wherever you sourced these materials, these ingredients. It could be during the preparation at home. You know, so obvious contamination and foodborne illnesses would be things like bacterial infection. So very common would be things like salmonella bacteria, um, E. coli, um, Listeria monocytogenes, Campylobacter bacteria. There are also potential parasites that can be there. So toxoplasmosis is a parasite. But there are also the potential for other sorts of parasites like worms, which can be present in a variety of meat and fish products that you could, in theory, feed to your cat or dog. And, you know, yes, cats are technically obligate carnivores, but, you know, the common misconception is that meat alone is sufficient, and, and that's not really true. There are a variety of micronutrients that cats also need. So, you know, you can't just simply give your cat just raw meat and think that's fine. Um, on top of that, if you're taking meat cuts that have bones in them and you're grinding them up, those could lead to, obviously, intestinal issues, blockages, lacerations, things like that. And I think, you know... Those are very hard to fix. <laughs> right, right. You know, expensive, dangerous, you know, a lot of that sort of stuff. And, you know, as Bill, I think you alluded to, you know, just because something happened a long time ago, you know, that is ancestral wild cats eat raw meat from things they kill doesn't mean that we should be doing that to our domesticated animals. You know, if, if you have a pet cat that gets outside and eats a mouse or a bird or something like that, it's very likely they're going to get parasites from that and then they're going to need treatment to flush those parasites out. And the same could be true if you're feeding them raw meat that you obtained elsewhere. It's well established that cooking, you know, increases digestibility and increases the availability of nutrients. You know, it's been attributed to, you know, humanity's great leap forward is cooking enhance, like makes food better for you and better to eat. 
those nutrients aren't necessarily better because they're raw. Right. And in fact, many things are, you know, those nutrients are not bioavailable or available for digestion until they're altered through heating processes. I thought it was interesting to note that when we feed our pets a raw diet, we also kind of put ourselves at risk because then we, we're at risk for becoming infected with those same pathogens, um, toxins. I never know what word to use. I'm afraid that Andrea is going to yell at me, but um, because consuming raw diets with any of these pathogens, um, you know, after consuming these diets, animals can shed them in their feces or saliva and then contaminate families. I know my daughter, as much as we try to discourage it, she puts her face right on our dog's faces. Um, and then also pet parents may accidentally ingest the bacteria if they, if they, you know, they touch their mouth while preparing the raw food or handling a contaminated utensil. Um, and these things can be dangerous. So there was actually a study, a two-year study spanning from October 2010 through July 2012, um, conducted by the FDA Center for Veterinary Medicine. They screened over 1,000 samples of pet food for bacteria that could cause foodborne illnesses. And they found that compared to other types of pet food tested, raw pet food was significantly more likely to be contaminated with disease-causing bacteria. Of the 196 raw pet food samples analyzed, 15 were positive for salmonella and 32 were positive for listeria. So the FDA is not too keen on these um, raw pet food diets either. Andrea, I think we had a question from one of our herd members. Yeah, so Abby had a dog that unfortunately passed away from a cancer called hemangiosarcoma. And one of the pet owner Facebook groups really kind of made her feel guilty and insinuated that the fact that she had fed her dog a dry kibble diet had contributed to his cancer progression. And instead, she should have been feeding him raw food. So, Bill, can maybe you address, you know, what the data say? maybe briefly about like the nutritional differences between raw food versus kibble and and really what's going on with regard to this. I can't really tell you that there's any data about raw diets preventing or curing hemangiosarcomas. There's just, there is absolutely no reason to think that. There is absolutely no reason that that would work. These hemangiosarcomas are very common tumors in a variety of dog breeds. About two thirds of them are malignant, uh, about two-thirds of those are metastasized by the time you've found them. Uh, it's a pretty nasty disease, but there is no link to the diet. And I'm very sorry for Abby, because it's a really nasty disease, but she didn't do anything wrong or feed him wrong or you know, treat her dog poorly by feeding him kibble instead of raw food or anything else. All right, you heard it from the expert, Abby. Nothing you did would have contributed to that. You know, if you guys listen to our Basics of Cancer podcast, you would have you would know that cancer is a catch-all phrase for hundreds of different genetically unique diseases. There are many, many, many things that contribute to cancers. You cannot lump them into a single category like that. So I think the big takeaway is there's no scientific evidence that raw food diets are nutritionally superior than kibble or wet food commercial food. And there are risks of being less nutritious if you're not conferring with a veterinary nutritionist. But on top of that, there are some very real risks of contamination and, and other sorts of foodborne illness. So let's let's talk about grain-free because 
oh my goodness, this is everywhere. I know that Bill will have a lot to say about this, and Andrea, you as well. Oh, yeah, I've been gearing up for this one. Yeah, I was excited to talk about I, this. I, I went to Whole Food recently. I don't usually shop there, but I forget why, why I was there. And I had to pick up some dog food. I knew we were running low. I could not find dog food that was not grain-free there. This is all the rage now. So, Andrew, do you want to maybe set the stage and then we'll pick Bill's brain? Yes. So typically grain-free pet foods are emerging in popularity, just like you're seeing the grain-free, you know, carb-free trends among humans. In the past two decades, these have emerged very rapidly and they're marketed as being healthier and more nutritious or more natural than pet foods that contain grains. They also are touted, you know, as a way to address grain allergies, whether or not that's even been, you know, diagnosed by a veterinary professional. But typically what they're doing is as these are commercial foods that replace grains that are typically found in pet foods, which are most often corn with other types of carbohydrates, beans, peas, potatoes, and other non-grain. Unfortunately, these alternative sources, they are still carbohydrates, but often they're not as abundant in certain types of nutrients and, and things like that. So, Bill, I'm going to hand it over to you and maybe talk about, you know, some of the nuance behind the grain-free diet um, and, and some of the considerations about this. Well, I think you started off by saying a lot of people do it to prevent or to, you know, address what they perceive our food allergies in their dogs. And the good news is food allergies are not very common. And the better news is grain allergies are even less common. Um, you know, these dermatologic adverse food reactions just aren't very common. It's four or five times more likely that your dog has, you know, a skin infection or an environmental allergen rather than a food allergy, um, which is good because diagnosing a food allergy is difficult. It requires, you know, it's usually a process where you eliminate, you know, environmental allergens and you eliminate infections and you eliminate other possible causes like topical parasites or yeast infections, that sort of thing. And then you do a food trial, a food restriction trial. And to get any kind of results from that takes at least eight weeks, usually 12. So you're not really going to see a fast result from that. So if you change your dog's food and said, oh my God, I started giving him salmon, he stopped itching. What was going on might've been food related, but it wasn't a food allergy. If you, you know, change it in a day later, oh my God, like these are type one hypersensitivities. They just don't resolve in a matter of minutes. And I'll let the immunologist talk about that. But <laughs> we'll just start by saying you usually don't need a grain-free diet at all. The grain-free food has been associated with dilated cardiomyopathy. It's thought that those legumes when in those high doses, like replacing the carbs, are thought to be uh, cardiotoxic. Um, the good news is if you've been feeding grain-free food, some, a lot of times the uh, heart changes can be reversible if you go back to a regular diet. Um, that's kind of nice. Um, but to me, this grain-free thing is real. It's uh, you know, you're seeing cases of DCM in patients that are too young, the wrong breed. Like you've never seen a, a DCM case in a two-year-old poodle before, but all of a sudden you've got one in front of you because she's been on a grain-free food for a whole life. 
I think it's going to be one of these things, even though right now there's no, there's not a causal link. I think it's going to be similar to another issue in dogs with uh, ivermectin, a small population of dogs have a mutation of the MDR1 gene. They're very sensitive to high doses of ivermectin. It can be toxic for them. While as many, most dogs are perfectly fine. I think as we continue to do research, I suspect we're gonna find that there's like a small population of dogs with this gene or that gene or this uh, problem or that problem have, are much more susceptible to this DCM problem. And in the meantime, food allergies just aren't that common. Uh, and if it wasn't diagnosed by you know, a veterinarian, a veterinary dermatologist, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in that diagnosis. Yeah. And, and Bill, you know, I think you, you hit you hit a point that obviously um, crosses over into human medicine, too, where, you know, people are taking on these elimination diets because they, you know, took a, a fake you know, health test that is not based on science and they're suddenly self-diagnosing themselves with all these sensitivities or allergies or things like that, which which are not found in an actual medicine. I did really want to quickly just kind of um, touch on, you know, dilated cardiomyopathy is basically an enlargement of the heart, which obviously puts stress on the heart. And this can ultimately lead to congestive heart failure where fluid basically encases the heart. Yep. And it and it adds pressure and that can ultimately be fatal. Um, so, you know, we don't want to. So what, what's happening in dilated cardiomyopathy is that those ventricles, those that, you know, those chambers of the heart are just getting stretched and too big. They di- They literally dilate. So the heart just can't get the muscles to like in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the hi- there's hypertrophy of the heart muscle, you get smaller chambers. In this one, the In DCM, they're dilating, they're getting bigger, and the heart just, the muscles are too stretched and they can't, like, force that blood through the body. So definitely not something you want to mess with, you know, so even if a a causal link has not been definitively established, um, there doesn't appear to be a nutritional reason to opt for grain-free either. Right. And Andrea, I think you you touched on this. I think that a lot of folks who are buying grain free, they are just assuming that the grain is being replaced with some higher quality ingredient or more meat. And as you said, that's that's not the case. Often they're being replaced with things that are increasing their carb intake, that are lacking in key nutrients and are not always supplemented elsewhere in food. And actually the FDA is, is conducting an ongoing investigation. It started in July of 2018 investigating DCM, which we've talked about in dogs that eat certain pet foods labeled as grain-free. And so many of the case reports that are included in this study included breeds of dogs that um, are not previously known to have a genetic predisposition to the disease. And Andrea, um, as you said, there's no causal link established yet. This is still ongoing, but based on the data collected and, and analyzed thus far, the agency believes that there is a potential association. Um, of course, you know, as with all things, this is a complex scientific issue that may involve multiple factors, but folks definitely need to know that not only 
is grain-free food not superior, but it, it appears there is also, you know, these these risks of potentially very severe outcomes, including DCM. Now, Bill, obviously, you know, the the dilated cardiomyopathy is, you know, we've been using the phrase canine, so it obviously appears to be more implicated in the context of dogs. What are your thoughts or what do the data say with regard to cats and grain-free pet foods? I don't see this as frequently. There's way less data. There's just so much less data. I don't think I've ever had a cat on where an owner was like, yeah, he's on a grain-free food. You know, and I, I see a couple dozen patients a day. So I don't, um, you know, uh, you know, I like cats just as much as I like dogs. But fortunately, the cat owners... The Andreas of the world have not have not fallen prey to this the way the dog owners have, and I, I think that has to do with the fact that food allergies are more common in dogs in the first place, and so you just you know you're not going to see it in cats nearly as much. Now the next one that I want to talk about before we go into some of the other herd from the herd questions is the vegan and vegetarian diets and. I want to focus on the risks in particular for cats. So Naturally. <laughs> am I being biased here? Um, no, that's okay. Yeah. Bill, can you kind of, you know, talk a little bit about this issue? You know, I, I think this is obviously less common than the raw food and the grain-free, but, but we do hear accounts of individuals who they themselves are vegan or vegetarian and have opted to modify their pet's diet to also be vegan or vegetarian? I fortunately don't have any pet owners <laughs> who do that. So that's for, I'm really glad to say that. Um, I do think there are, you know, there are obviously risks to it, particularly taurine deficiency. We know taurine is treated as an essential amino acid in cats. Taurine's really neat organic osmolite. You want to <laughs> nerd out for a while, go look up taurine. Um, but it has to do, you know, it's in every bit of ocular tissue, it's in heart tissue, it's in muscle tissue. Deficiencies in taurine will really uh, kill you quite dead quite quickly. These vegan vegetarian diets, like applying morality to the diet of an obligate carnivore, like a cat, is just a, we have, we have lost mm -hmm. our way. Mm -hmm. We need to just feed them what they need and, and not worry so much about applying our moral standards to their diets. I think you make a great point there, Bill. And, and you know, just for our listeners, so taurine is an amino acid. And when Bill says it's an essential one, that means cats cannot make it themselves. So they have to consume it. And it is only found in animal-based protein. So if you're feeding a cat a vegan or a vegetarian diet, they're not going to be able to get that essential amino acid. And that can ultimately be fatal for them. But Bill, you know, I've heard some individuals who are vegan and vegetarian and, you know, some of them are like, listen, I get it. It. My cat needs meat to survive. It needs animal products to survive. Other people say, well, you know, if I am uncomfortable with that, I will get a pet that does not need animal products to survive, like a rodent or of some sort. That's reasonable. I think that's a reasonable alternative. And I, you know, I just, you know, I'm in the business of helping animals. What primates do with themselves is another issue entirely. I have one more question before we move into kind of the, the human food realm. So I want to talk a little bit about like quality control, because one thing we hear is that and this is true, obviously, with human food as well. But, you know, people don't trust the large pet food manufacturers. They think that the smaller boutique food manufacturers are better or superior because 
Um, you know, it's not this conveyor belt industrial, you know, entity. Can you talk a little bit about kind of quality control or how pet food is regulated and maybe what's real about this? Well, just because uh, fewer bags are made or they're overseen by one person doesn't mean they're necessarily made correctly. Like these are manufacturing processes. And if you make one bag or a million bags, you can still mess it up. The FDA oversees pet food production in the United States, regulates pet food in the United States. And America is great. The FDA, the USDA are great organizations. They are really good about regulating these things and keeping Americans safe and their pets safe. And one of the ways they do it in pet food is by testing this stuff and making standards. And most of these like large manufacturing organizations, these big corporations have militant quality control measures. They do not want to be the ones to have the Exxon Valdez of pet foods, right? Like they want to do a good job. They want to make a good product. They don't want anybody getting sick. And these, like they are, they are really good at it. And I think, um, to say that, you know, your mom's kitchen is cleaner than McDonald's is not necessarily true, but you know, there, there's really pretty serious laws and regulations about this kind of stuff that sometimes the people keeping America safe are immunologists at the CDC. Sometimes they're veterinarians at a pet food plant. Sometimes they're Marines with a gun or a meteorologist, you know, looking at a hurricane. But, you know, we live in a country where we're really lucky to have a government does a good job of regulating these things. So what would you tell someone who, you know, is looking at Purina versus Meow Mix versus some small kind of boutique brand, you know, how would you help them or guide them to pick what's going to be the option they should choose for their pet? Is it as simple as, you know, as long as they have some, you know, if they are, you know, legitimate food sources that are regulated by the FDA, then it's, then it should be safe? That's my bare minimum. That would be where I'd start. Um, you know, if you're going to pick a pet food, my advice to people and my personal prejudice biased advi advice is try different brands of pet food and the boutique brands or the large brands or whoever you want to try and see which one your, you know, pet does better eating. You know, do they like this one? Does their coat look better? Do they have good energy? Are they finishing their food? Is, you know, are the stools normal? Is all these things. If you've got a healthy pet and they like their food, then I think you're doing it right. To me, the biggest problem I see with pet food is too much of it. It's not it's not even grain-free. It's not even uh, raw food. It's that animals are obese. That causes more problems and arthritis and deaths and troubles than all the DCM cases put together. So I think you should feed your pets a healthy amount, not too much, and try different brands and foods and feedings so that you can find out which one your pet does better on. Or or if you're like me and you have three cats that like one type of food and four cats that like the other, and then you're just juggling brands because they all can't agree. Yeah, I think you're, yeah, I wish you the best. <laughs> they have automated feeders. You can maybe try those. <laughs> yeah, we just, we just free feed. It's just chaos. <laughs> and I was going to say, I actually, when I, when I'm picking food for, for my pets, I tend to go with the larger companies and not the smaller boutique ones just thinking about quality control right you know uh, the, the those smaller boutique brands don't have the same amount of testing for safety for efficacy for all that good 
stuff that the larger brands do. Is that what you were going to say, Andrea? You you do the same? I've often just gone for, you know, I mean, I've had pets my whole life, right? So it's kind of like, you know, do what's worked in the past sort of thing. And, you know, typically I'm going for a Meow Mix or a Purina or something like that. And, you know, of course, it's it's one thing that the cats like it, but but on top of that, yeah, you know, I mean, we know with larger scale manufacturing that there's going to be more oversight. There's typically more steps in the quality control process. And the same is true in biotech, right? And, in, in, you know, any sort of research that I do is, you know – with a small company, something like a startup, there's there's often fewer gatekeepers. And so things can fall through the cracks a little bit more easily. And just to keep it real, those smaller uh, boutique brands are typically like three times the price of, the, of the, <laughs> the larger companies. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my pets, but I'm not seeing any data that are convincing me that the smaller boutique, you know, brands of food are superior in any way. And a lot of them include things like, you know, grain-free and, and these other things that we've spoken about today that are not only not superior, but actually can pose health problems for our, for our furry friends. So... We're coming up on time here, Andrea. What do we want to talk about next? So I really just wanted to kind of open the floor for Bill to, you know, obviously I have cats that are very enthusiastic eaters and often am fending off my dinner plate. And and we know, let's be real, people give their pets treats. So maybe we can close with like, What's your advice with regard to human food as treats? What are some specific warnings that you might have? And we do have a question um, from our herd that maybe we can wrap with. Well, when it comes to human food, in my rough estimation, I think there are two kinds of pet owners. There are kind of the pet owners who admit that they give their pets human food and then there are liars. <laughs> and I, we all do it, right? Like whether we do it intentionally or not, or whether their kid does it or a neighbor does it or something, like they all get it at one point or another. Uh, so I turn to ancient Greek philosophy, the wisdom of Apollo, who said nothing too much, all things in moderation. That's my advice. So just they're very small animals. You know, they're you know, my dog is a tenth my size. They are they can eat very, very little of what we eat, uh, despite her like her <laughs> yeah, imploring eyes, <laughs> like her desperate, like, please feed me. like just feed very, very, like if you're going to do it and you're, we all know you're going to do it, feed very, very small amounts. Well, and, and there are some issues, right? You know, well, so just to be oh, sure. to totally. And set off gastroenteritis, pancreatitis, you know, this time of year, you know, there's a joke about the, the day after Thanksgiving for everybody else. It's black Friday and veterinary hospitals. It's Brown Friday. Ooh. Yikes. Because like everybody overindulged, including the pets. Right. So, you know, these are like this time of year, like the post holiday rush is um, is a thing that happens to us. And we you know, we see these pancreatitis and these gastroenteritis cases. Right. Uh, pretty consistently this time of year. And then, you know, some human food, well, many human foods contain an unhealthy amount of sodium. So that's something else to consider. I think, Andrea, was it you who referenced, you know, choking hazards and small bones and things like that that we have to consider. And then some things are actually toxic. I know for dogs, and correct me if I'm wrong, but things like chocolate, cinnamon, macadamia nuts, um, things like that can actually be toxic at certain levels. Right. 
And, and, you know, other things like garlic and onions, while, you know, safe for humans, consumption should not be fed to cats and dogs and, you know, and other household items as well. So just because humans can eat it, you know, doesn't necessarily mean your pet can also eat it safely. I'm always asking Alexa, Alexa, can my <laughs> can my dogs eat so and so? But that's this is relevant to the the herd from the herd question that came through. Andrea, do you want to read it? So Michael asked us, you know, just how toxic are grapes for dogs. So, you know, he recounted a story where he rushed to the emergency vet at 2 a.m. because, you know, it turned out his wife had fed the dog a couple of grapes and, you know, they panicked and they, you know, felt like they had heard that, you know, under no circumstances should dogs have any sort of grapes. And so, you know, really kind of what's what's that that guidance here in this situation? I would have done what Michael did and rushed to, well, I would have rushed to my own hospital. But I... I would have made my dog vomit if they ate grapes. There is just in the last few months, we're seeing, you know, a causal link between tartaric acid and like a species specific tartaric acid toxicity. Um, it is not well described yet, is not well established yet, but because grapes can cause acute renal failure, acute, you know, failure of the kidneys, I would have done what Michael did and, you know, rushed to the hospital and made my dog vomit because. I think the risk is there. Um, can you get away with it? Yeah, that's great, but that's not advice you're going to hear from a veterinarian. I think you should take that kind of stuff seriously until we know more about it, because you can recover from a vet bill and vomiting a lot more quickly than you can renal failure. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our time. So, um, Bill, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I wanted to just close with any last words that you would leave for our listeners who are pet parents. I think I go back to the obesity thing. I think obesity and arthritis is a much bigger problem than any of these diets. And you do much better by your pet to feed them a moderate amount, despite their look and whining and cats on your plate. Because the animals that are a healthy body weight live on average two years longer. So if you want to keep them around longer, the easiest, best thing you could do with their diet is keep it in moderation. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. And friends, we hope you learned a thing or two today. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> and if you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. We post extended content there periodically and regularly respond to questions and comments from our subscribers. So you'll have a direct line to me and Jess. You also have access to our private Facebook group where you can vote on future pod topics and also submit questions from our Herd from the Herd segment. So check it out at the Unbiased Sci Pod. Next week, we will be discussing a topic very relevant to the start of the new year, and that will be body dysmorphic disorder. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19, RSV, influenza, and lots of other topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. I am a scientist.